0: Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers Podcast. Today we are catching up with Peter Harold. Peter is Managing Director of Poseidon Nickel, a name which tells you all you need to know about the company's focus, and that's high-grade nickel in Western Australia. It trades under the code POS, or Papa Oscar Sierra, and last traded at 6.6 cents for a market cap of 185 million. The company has three projects in WA, all of which come with resources and past production histories, including the old Mount Mandara deposit, originally found by the now long departed original Poseidon Company, which triggered what became known as the Poseidon Nickel Boom of the late 1960s. Poseidon's immediate focus is on its Black Swan project, 50 kilometres northeast of Kalgoorlie. It has a 195,000 tonne nickel resource there and a processing plant from past work and it's where Poseidon made the exciting high-grade golden swan discovery in March last year. The S- discovery has accelerated planning for Poseidon to become a nickel producer next year, which is uh, more than can be said for a lot of nickel hopefuls out there. Now, as we know, investors have switched on to nickel as a result of its star performance in recent times. The metal averaged US $6.26 a pound in calendar 2020 and now sits at US seven fifty dollars a pound which is up by about 20% on the 2020 average. Having said that, though, the metal did pass through $8 a pound recently but got pulled up when the world's biggest nickel producer, China's Jingzuan, announced its plan to expand nickel pig iron production from laterite ores in Indonesia. More telling for the nickel price was the Chinese group's plan to convert some of the nickel pig iron to nickel mat, a battery material precursor. Until now, nickel pig iron was sent off to the steel industry, leaving the faster-growing battery space to the sulphide nickel producers like those in WA. Some say the Chinese plans are a long-term blow to the nickel price, but others say that such is the growth in demand for nickel from uh, electric vehicle revolution, every nickel unit is going to be needed and more. To that end, it was interesting to see the big nickel producer, Glencore, recently forecast that to meet demand, the global industry will have to grow from the current 2.5 million tonnes per annum to 9.2 million tonnes per annum. That's a 3.7-fold increase, and all that in the next 30 years. Under that scenario, structural supply deficits are set to emerge by around 2023 by most estimates, potentially sending nickel prices skywards. So with that, I'm going to say good day to Peter and welcome him to the podcast. Hi, Peter, and thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks, Barry. Good to chat to you. Good on you. Now, um, let's cover off on the uh, nickel market uh, first. I had a lot to say there. You've been in the industry for more than 30 years, which is about as long as it will take uh, AFL Team Collingwood to win their next flag. (laughs) So what is your take on nickel uh, and your assessment of what China's MPI to nickel map plans could mean? Sure, and then I'll, then I'll come back to the Collingwood question as well. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, look, I think you, you, you set the scene really well, you know, with your conversation around electric vehicles and the demand growth, and, and you, you mentioned the, the number that everyone's talking about, which is that sort of fourfold increase in demand from sort of 2.5 million tonnes now to about nine, just over 9 million tonnes in, in 2050, and that was in that, the half-yearly presentation by Glencore. You know who obviously a, an organisation that, that produces a lot of nickel and knows their way around the space. You know you, you've got to you've got to realise obviously that we're we're it's an inter, you know once in an intergenerational uh, shift from you know we had horses at the turn of the century into motorcars, um, and I remember well a photograph that was taken in in uh, New York City you know turn of the century when there was you know a street where there was all these horses and one motorcar. And I think uh, in the book by Tony Siebert, there's a photograph 10 years later and there's one horse and the rest are motor cars. You know, the change was, was massive. And I think that's what we're facing with electric vehicles. And and Musk has, has said that. And I think the, the, the changes that you're seeing now already, there's over $500 billion being invested by uh, OEM car manufacturers in electric vehicle production. And even people like, you know, GM now saying, you know, all electric by 2035, Jaguar all electric by by 2025 i mean these are these are very very significant milestones and targets which these guys have to achieve and to do that they've got to have the um, the electric batteries and the the chemistry that's been chosen the uh, for all this first generation of of electric vehicle is the nickel lithium hydride battery so we're in good space and i think the numbers that have been forecast by Glencore are reflective of that um, battery chemistry and and the demand that we're going to see in terms of that that growth so I, I i'm comfortable with all of those numbers and i think then you alluded to the point around you know you've also got stainless steel and that's been growing compound for five uh, over you know sort of averaging five percent for the last sort of 40 years since 1970 so you know, huge demand still for stainless steel, so that, that underpins the the demand number that we're seeing today of two and a half million. But we've got this rapid growth in the electric vehicles and the, the nickel that's going to come from there. Now, you know, there's got to be new mines opened up. Uh, and there's got to be increased production from existing operations. And you know, Musk has said it; he said it publicly. Please ask all the nickel miners to mine more nickel. So yeah. I think it's a it's a very much a and and. This is, a, as I said, a once and an intergenerational change. And, and that's why I think people are jumping on the, the nickel story now, because they can see that there will be structural deficits going forward. And, and, you know, that will get filled. I mean, the nickel, they will find ways to make that nickel. You know, they always have in the past. So, you know, we saw the, the emergence of nickel pig iron, you know, in the, in the mid-2000s when nickel got really tight. Remember, nickel got to, um, you know, $50,000 a tonne. Twenty bucks a pound, and uh, I remember sitting in the boardroom and my chairman told it, telling me it was going to go to a hundred thousand dollars a ton. So at that stage, we didn't know about the nickel pig iron, and that and that filled a void. Uh, and you've alluded to that as well in the sense that you know there's now been some um, early deals where Chan Chan are going to sell um, some mat uh, that they've produced from the nickel pig iron to the battery guys, and that was always going to happen. It's all mm-hmm. about about the cost, though. What does it cost to convert? The nickel, pig iron into a product that can be then made into a battery product, and I'm hearing the number is sort of, you know, four to four thousand dollars a ton. So it's 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 not cheap, uh, and it's and it's going to be you know uh, require a lot of uh, um, sort of um, additional cost to get it into the product that they need. So I think that you know that that all bodes well for the nickel price going forward.
0: Right. Okay. And uh, just on that, um, what's uh ESG is all important nowadays, as it uh, should be. What's the uh, what is the uh, ESG credentials of the sulphide nickel you'll be producing versus, say, what comes out of Indonesia?
1: Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good question. Look, at, at the moment, you know, we'll be producing. You know, our flagship project is is Black Swan, and you alluded to it in your introduction that we'd be looking to mine the high grade Golden Swan ore body or Golden Swan mineralisation that we discovered last year, and we're working on that now. The, uh, at, at the moment, you know you mine that using underground uh, trucks and loaders, which are diesel powered, and then you bring that up to surface and tr- put it through your own concentrator, uh, or or ship it to somebody else's concentrator, where it's uh, you know then obviously uh, taken through to a smelter. And that smelter converts it obviously into nickel mat. And then the mat goes to a refinery uh, where it's electro electro one to produce nickel. So, you know, that's currently not, um, you know, environmentally that friendly in, in terms of carbon emissions, unless you've got access to hydropower. Um, you know, gas-fired gas power is obviously better than, than diesel-fired power stations. So, uh, obviously, in Western Australia, there's, there's a gas power station up in, in uh, Kalgoorlie. Uh, mm-hmm. for the gas pipeline, so there, it's it's partially ESG friendly. I, I think you will you will also see a move to a, a electrification of mining equipment underground, because it deals with two of the big issues that we have underground. One is is heat, and the other one is diesel fumes, and a lot of infrastructure uh, that we have to put in and run is uh, ventilation. For underground mines, and as the mines get deeper, you require more ventilation, even cooling sometimes in, in some of the more challenging environments as you get deeper, and, and all of that, you know, is run by electricity. Uh, and so, if we can remove the need to exhaust the fumes and the heat, and one way of doing that is to use electric loaders and electric trucks. And I, and and there's been a lot of work being done by um, some of the major um, underground equipment suppliers. They've already worked out a system for um, underground loaders and, and already the the sort of the, uh, I guess, the evolution of these loaders is, is gathering momentum quickly. So I think in the next three to five years, you are going to see a big move across towards um electrification using batteries of, of underground mining equipment and that's going to be a major shift and that's going to certainly improve the ESG footprint um, for um, underground nickel sulphide mines.
0: Mm. And, well, looking at it another way, if I'm a, a car manufacturer and I'm deeply concerned about my ESG credentials, would I, by preference, be buying uh, nickel nickel sulfate produced from... A sulfide material in WA or MPI slash laterites in Indonesia. So, yeah, look, I think
1: I think you're definitely uh, on the balance. You'd be definitely going for for the Western Australian material uh, because you know um, you've got uh, if you look at the, the material in, in the Philippines and uh, in uh, New Caledonia uh, or Indonesia. I mean, most of that, you know, if it's going through an HPL plant, sorry, a yeah, an HPL plant nickel pig iron. And and then it's been turned into That That is using a lot of, you know, coal and and, uh, other things that are obviously have a negative on your Mm -hmm. uh, ESG um, uh, tick the box. So I think, yeah, you're seeing uh, people will look at it and and obviously what will, uh, I guess, each mine will look at its um, ESG footprint and it will then obviously track its way through, you know, where it sells its product to. Yep. and so if it obviously goes to you know, BHP Nickel West to the smelter there and then through the refinery, you, you'll be able to track all that back and, and actually give yourself a mark and uh, you'll be able to compare that with um, the, the, the Nickel Pig Iron guys and my sense is you'll, you'll come out very
0: well. Good. Mm, okay. Right now Golden Swan, I've mentioned it's the focus. Um, tell us about this discovery and how you see a development there, uh, how it can leverage off the, the existing Black Swan infrastructure. Yeah, well, let me give you a bit of history first.
1: So this goes back to 1995 when I was working for a company called MPI, and we discovered the original Silver Swan uh, high-grade underground deposit, which was about 440,000 tons of 14% nickel. I mean, incredibly high grade. Uh, we discovered that in '95. We started mining it in '97. It was a joint venture between MPI and Udakumpu. We produced a concentrate. Uh, and that was shipped to Finland to the Valton nickel smelter, which is still operating today, albeit that it's owned by Bolida now, not, not uh, Utukumpu. So I was heavily involved in that project on the sort of the project development and marketing side. And it's interesting that that, that mine was, was fully mined and then there was a lot more nickel discovered deeper down. And, and in fact, that whole Silver Swan Channel, has been about a nearly 140,000 tonnes of high-grade nickel mined out of it between sort of uh, say 1997 and about 2010. And mm-hmm. that through three different companies, MPI, then Utacumpu, then back to MPI, and then Lion Ore, and then finally Norilsk. Uh, and Poseidon picked it up uh, as a, for a file sale price when uh, uh, Norilsk when, uh, was exiting Australia. So we picked up a, a 2.2 million tonne processing plant that was on care and maintenance and all the infrastructure. Um, and, and a small high-grade um, underground resource at Silver Swan right at the bottom, about 1.3 kilometres below surface. Um, so there's still high-grade material there. There's also a low-grade open pit. uh, runs about 0.7 nickel, which is a, a disseminated nickel, sulphide, and also stockpiles. So there was a feasibility study done back in 2018 about restarting that mill at the rate of about 1.1 million tonne a year, uh, and um, – Blending in the the high grade um, underground ore with the low grade to sort of make a, a sort of a blend that would be acceptable uh, for the for the concentrator. Uh, that that project um, you know required about a, a sixty million dollar um, sort of cash maximum cash drawdown. Um, so it was a fairly aggressive project, and it needed sort of eight dollar nickel and about a sixty seven cent dollar. So kind of about the prices we've got today in Australian dollar terms or a little bit higher in fact so it was a relatively tough project in in light of the the nickel price so when I got involved in the company um, we looked at the expiration and uh, not of my doing but there were there were targets that had been identified um, that were worth worthy of, of drilling and in March of last year we were lucky enough to drill through a high grade um, zone of mineralization sort of you know not around nine percent nickel uh, in in what we we, dis- what we made the discovery name golden swan. And it actually sits about three hundred meters south of the old silver swan system. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a comardiite channel. Uh, similar to all the Campbell type flows, but obviously the grade is much higher. So we're we're in a unique situation that we've got it, and then we've subsequently put two more holes into it, and both of those have come up with you know sort of north of eight percent material, including higher grade portions within that within those zones. So what we what we believe we're onto is a, is another potentially another channel system like Silver Swan. We we don't know yet because we we haven't done enough drilling. But what we've what we've got is the right grade and the and potentially hopefully enough tons to to turn that into a mine. So that's what we're focused on, and what we're doing now is we're putting an underground drive off the existing Silver Swan decline. It's, a, it's a, just over four hundred meters of drive, and then once we complete that, we'll put two drill rigs in, and we'll be able to drill um, out. The known mineralization which is currently over about 170 meters by about 60 meters wide um, or 60 meters long by, by four or five meters width potentially and that's the current known sort of um, um, area that we believe contains the current sort of known mineralization so that's a project that'll take us in, into the third, the third quarter mm-hmm. and then straight off the back of that we should have a resource we we'll give that to the mining engineers. They can convert it into a reserve and then we should be in a position to um, go out and talk to some customers about um, or, or, in fact, um, looking at our own processing plant. And the two options are obviously, or well, there's actually a number of options, but the main two options would be to ship that ore to a third party. You know, obviously, uh, BHP has a concentrator that they're restarting down at Cam to treat the mincore materials, so that would be mm-hmm. an option. Place for that to go, um, or we could put it through. And there's there's one or two other buyers in Western Australia, or we could put it through our own concentrator, and and that then depends on you know how we set how we reset the concentrator up. At what um, annualized rate do we refurb it to? So all of that work needs to be done, and and we've started that work already in anticipation, so that by the end of this year we're in a position to make a decision have all the information in terms of what the terms would be for the different products and what the cost would be for uh, mining just the mine, the mine plus the concentrator. And all of those things need to be fed into the corporate model and then come up with the, the best way of, of um, you know, what's the, what's the best return for shareholders for, for Golden Swan. And then that uh, allows us to mine Silver Swan as well. So we could have you know, two high grade sources of ore from underground you know, feeding into uh, a a direct shipping ore type model or into our own concentrator. And then obviously there's the open pit and if the nickel prices keep going up, there's the potential to bring that on as well. So lots of optionality, Barry, and it's really Mm -hmm. just a function of of A, knowing um, the, the size of golden swan, and more excitingly is, you know, it does Golden Swan extend? We we just don't know that yet. So what happens if we put another drill hole in? And we're doing that at the moment, about a hundred meters below the known mineralization. If that has a, a an intersection or an EM plate uh, that comes off that, then you know that that demonstrates potentially that the uh, the mineralization can continue, which would be similar to what happened at Silver Swan. So really exciting, and we might have only just scratched the surface here.
0: Mm, I was going to ask them. Um, Nickel exploration techniques uh, and understandings have uh, changed dramatically in recent years. Golden Swan is probably a result of all that. Just wondering, what your learnings with that discovery mean for the exploration potential of the nearby and broader region?
1: Yeah, and and look, you've you've picked another good point. And one of the things that we use, you know, very very extensively is uh, downhole EM electromagnetics. And, and we've actually just put in an, a fixed loop underground, which we didn't have there before, which really gives us, you know, much better quality data and, and has the benefit of sort of drowning out all the background interference. So you get very clean information. And our, our um, consultants new Exco have been really impressed with the high quality of the data. So what that means is every, now every, every hole that we drill, you know, we will put in uh, an EM pro and that allows us to see about 50 metres around the hole in all directions. And so that, that is a very powerful tool. And what we're lucky in, it seems in this golden swan, silver swan system that historically, if you get a, a, a very good EM conductor, it, it tends to be nickel sulphides. You, know, you, you can go into some other geological settings and you can get very good EM conductors, but they, they can actually be uh, graphitic schists. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're false positives. But we, we don't seem to have anything like that at um, Black Swan. So we're lucky in the sense that if we do pull up a, a decent EM target, there's a very good chance that it, it will be mineralized. So that provides us with a really good target to go back and, and drill out again. So you get sort of, you know... Effectively, two bites of the cherry. If you drill, if you drill a hole and you don't get mineralisation in it, you, you immediately put a probe down that hole and you get the benefit of being able to do that mm. EM survey and uh, and that hopefully leads to you know a, a, another EM plate and a target to drill to.
0: Okay, now just bringing it all together, what should shareholders then look out for in terms of news flow in coming months?
1: Yeah, so look, we've we've put out a a, um, a sort of a rough. Uh, timetable and what we're saying is um, finish the drill drive start the drilling in the second quarter of this year calendar finish that drilling by the end of the uh, calendar second quarter into the third quarter put out a a a jork resource which would be q3 and then uh, give that to the mining engineers convert that to a mining inventory Uh, then that goes into a, a, a effectively a a feasibility study for, for want of a better word uh, which includes obviously marketing and all those other things and we're trying to get all of that finished um, by the end of the year so that we can put out a, a, effectively a definitive feasibility study that would allow our board to make a decision uh, on a, um, a to commence mining of Golden swan that's our primary objective and that's by
0: by the end of the year okay exciting stuff um finally uh, you've got a a particularly strong shareholder base, including I see Andrew Forrest with a 13.7% stake. Mm-hmm. Just wondering uh, if his ownership of RM Williams means that you've had to replace your preference uh, for dress boots <laughs> from what was a family company, Harold Boots, to something from RM Williams' collection to stay yeah. sweet with the great. Yeah,
1: no, good pick up, Barry. No, no, I've still got the Harolds on. Oh, well uh, <laughs> I think the ones I've got on today are about 35 years old. They've been resold about 10 times. Um, they, I think that was part of the problem with the old man's business. That, you know, they, they, they never wear out. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, have, I haven't. I do actually have one pair of RMs um, uh, that weren't given to, to me by Andrew, but I, I think uh, you know it's a great thing that he's that he's picked that that yeah, is. Mm-hmm company up and I think it'll be brilliant for for Australia and for for RMs I think you'll expand that business and it'll be you know it'll grow in leaps and bounds and uh, I think uh, you know it'll be certainly a lot bigger than Harold's shoes which is still being made as you know um, although not in Australia anymore they get made in Vietnam but they're still still operating and still you know uh, um, Ken Watkin who bought the business off my dad still doing a great job there and he sent me over a pair of boots only just recently which uh, I'm, I'm very proud of. So, yeah, I've probably got about 10 pairs of Harold's in the wardrobe, so no, no chance of changing those over to RMs in, in, the, in the immediate future.
0: <laughs> Good on you. All righty. With that, uh, I'm going to thank you uh, for your time today, Peter, and uh, best of luck with it all. Exciting stories. So we'll watch with interest. Yeah, thanks very much, Barry. Good to talk to you.